We could just form a garage band. Hi everybody, welcome to the Cultural Studies Podcast. It's Toby Miller here and I'm in Brighton, England, <laughs> in a restaurant called Terre à Terre, as we like to say, in what some people think of as East Street and some people think of as Little East Street. And I'm with two friends of mine. One, Sarah, who was on the podcast the other day. Another, the Jed Star. Now, Jed Star, known as Jed, I need help with okay. the correct pronunciation of your last name. Okay. Is it Liza with a Z or Liza with an S? Is it Novik or Novik? It's Novik. It's, it Novik. is Novik. Yeah, yeah, it's Novik. Okay, because we were thinking it might have been Novik, but it's Novik. Yeah, if my sister was sitting here, it would be Novik. Now what? But she's not, so it's Novik. What happened in the family drama to make that occur? That difference of pronunciation. Well, like a lot of uh, like a lot of immigrant names, it's kind of made up and and, and cut short. It was originally, I believe, Novikovsky. Novikovsky. Yeah. Um, and got truncated for business reasons. But it didn't get anglicised. It's still other, isn't yeah. it? It wasn't yeah. turned into Smith or Miller or one of those exciting names yeah. like yeah, that. Yeah. Novik, I guess. They felt yeah. ticked the box, you know. Yeah, I don't know yeah, why. Yeah. But why does your sister pronounce it differently? Because she's wrong. Right, okay. Is this a family drama that we need to interrogate <laughs> in greater detail? No, because she's not here. No, she's fine. She's fine. She lives in France, so forgive her. Oh, it's... Well, they've probably got... They, you know, they have different words for things there, aren't they? Johnny Foreigner, endlessly inventive. Now, Jed, we're, yeah. we're here in this restaurant really because I wanted to record this conversation with you. I'd love to know what you're up to right now. Tell us, I mean, we know that your daughter is soon to turn 18, which yeah. is a very big deal. Yeah. What else is going on? Um, what's going on? The work-wise or life-wise or give me, uh, give me an area. Okay. Um, if we start with George Best's liver yeah. and then we move on to El Tell's hairdo, uh -huh. where are you between those two polarities? I'm probably nearer George Best right now. <laughs> <laughs> no, let's, let's talk work and, and, and then we can talk personal. Okay, work is... Um, I teach at Brighton University on a sports journalism course, a senior lecturer there, been there five years. Um, started off part-time, found I kind of liked it, and it grew into a life of its own. I, the, the, the idea of working with students, this will sound really, really soft, but I've only been there five years. And the idea of working with students, giving something back to them, encouraging, yep. infusing, I love it. And the relationships that I've built up with students in those five years has been really sweet. And quite a few have, have, have transcended that and we're now just friends. One of your students interviewed me the other day and he said to say hello oh, bless. from you. Can and I, I said, who? give Jed a kiss. And he said, I don't want to. <laughs> 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 but anyway... We'll go on to that later. Yeah. But, um, it's, but it's great working with, with, with young, enthusiastic, passionate yeah. people. Yeah. You know. And sports journalism, I was struck the other day, I was reading the Grawny ad, uh, to use its technical title, yeah. and they're running, I don't know if you saw this, a kind of weekender class for money in sports journalism. Yeah. And I was, when I saw that, I asked myself, thinking about you and our friend Rob Steen, who's been in the pod before, yeah. how many places in Britain or in Europe, or in fact any actually offer sports journalism as a specialist? There are quite a few university courses now. Are there? Um, I think there's about 12. Um, 
but there are quite a lot of courses also like the Guardians which not for credit just for money well yeah it is I mean you know the the, the Guardian bless them have got to get any revenue source that they can at the moment and and, and this is one why not you know there's a lot yep. of expertise on that boat yeah and uh, you know sell it to people yeah Quite yeah. what they're going to do with it, who knows? But the next question. Yeah, yeah. I noticed. Did you see that the, they're starting Guardian Australia? Are they? They've already. Yeah. They've. I don't know whether it's a print version. They have Guardian in New York already. They've got right. an office in New York. They're starting an office in Sydney, like in the next few weeks. I can't imagine it would be a print. No. Yeah, yeah. Oh yeah. Oh, right. oh, that's good. So, in, in terms of the, I mean, I, I guess the, they're also selling chocolates and wine and putting on public events. Of they have been quite inventive, I think. No, I, I actually but, but the as you say is, they need to survive. But, but the Guardian's a, a really thing. strong brand, isn't it? It is. You know, it's it not is. just a newspaper; it's a lifestyle thing. You know, I'm yeah. a Guardian reader. I live in you North know? London. Yeah, exactly, exactly. <laughs> North London, Sydney. North yeah. London, New York. Exactly. They're North all London. the same. Right. They're all North London. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> It's true. Now, my my recollection is that you worked for the Observer. I, well, I started working paper? for the Guardian. I, the uh, Guardian, okay. I um, I was on the launch of the Independent. Well, just after the launch, but effectively, and uh, um, and I loved it. It's probably the best job I ever had at uh, the Independent. At the Independent, yeah. Was it? Um, and then the Berlin Wall fell down, and my brain fell out, and. Uh, you know sometimes you watch something or you hear something or you experience something yeah. and you think that is the most exciting thing in the world I've got to go and see it I've got to go and do it yeah and uh, and I had a really good job at the India really lovely career path stretching out in front of me and all the rest you know um, girlfriend who wants to get married very nice flat nice car and then the Berlin Wall came down I remember watching it on TV and think I've got to go I've just got to be there wow and uh, and this is the long story short is, no, no, no. Uh, that uh, make it a long story the, that's the long story the long story tale. long anyway the uh, back to the chain yes yes <laughs> <laughs> so I gave up my job at the Indy and uh, um, explained to my girlfriend that, that life wasn't going to map out the way that she'd maybe wanted. Sold my flat um, and went to Berlin. And, uh, and had a ball. Had a ball. It was a bit by the time I got there. So were there, you being a backing singer to David Hasselhoff? <laughs> I was running along the beach carrying one of those red boxes, yeah. I mean, but in fairness, by the time I got to Berlin, it was yeah. a little bit like Butlins. And everyone you met... <laughs> Everyone you met. Butlins is a sadly non-existent. No, quick. Where is Wikipedia when you need it to answer up to date? Butlins was a, a ruling class holiday camp for Oxbridge graduates. Yeah. Don't believe him. Listen, who's ever listening? Don't believe him. But it's no, in but, Tommy. It's in Tommy. But the, yeah, it is. But the thing with with Berlin, by the time I got to Berlin, you could go and buy a packet of fags in a newsagent, and they'd try and sell you a bit of wall. You know, you, no, really, you could, oh, you, you know, you're standing in a bar and, and there's someone come up to you, you want to buy some wall, and it's just some bit of garden fence with a bit of spray paint on it, you know. So, but uh, really, it, just relics. Just relics. Yeah. But it, but the 
interesting thing about it was is that the structure of the society had collapsed and it was like living in the wild west it was yeah it was fantastically interesting and coming from coming from quite a sort of straight aspirational you know, very middle class media background. This was really interesting. Yeah, yeah. So so you're about thirty when this happens. Yeah. yeah. And going on suddenly eighteen. Yeah. Well there's there's I don't know if you're into astrology, but apparently there's an astrological phenomena that hits blokes particularly called Saturn Returns. And uh, and it's supposed to hit blokes when they're thirty. And it's I think it's kind of this I'm a kid. I don't want to be an adult. I'm not going to be an adult. I'm going to throw my toys out of the pram and stay being a kid. Yeah, that hit me at 16 right. and it never went away, yeah. unfortunately. Yeah. <laughs> you know. Not being a bloke, I want to speak. But I'm sure as being a woman, you could probably observe yeah, this. But yeah, I haven't You've seen it. You've felt it. You've seen the dummy fly yeah. by you. Yeah, yeah. Dodged and weaved the dummy as it's come out of the pram, right? Yeah. Oh, but the, yeah. <laughs> right. Wow. Yeah. So, no, so the toys flew out of my pram big yeah, style. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, okay, uh, okay. Found myself in Berlin. Um, uh, suddenly going back to the independent didn't seem such a good idea. I don't know why, it just didn't. Um, and there was all of, of what was still kind of Eastern Europe to explore. Sure. Um, and so I just went around what was Eastern Europe. Um, Hello, sorry? Too loud for me. Yeah, yeah. Sorry, I'm being too loud. Oh, sorry. Can I apologise? I apologise. Sorry, what was that? I can move you. I've got a, table, a really big table around the corner there if you wanted to keep it as loud as you want around there. I don't mind. Sure, well, it's Is that alright? Yeah. Oh. We're going to move to another table. Sorry, I was, I was sorry. just getting carried away with my story. Thank you. I'll come, if you want to come round and I'll do it. Oh, did you record him? So, hi everybody, uh, we're just restarting our conversation. Uh, there was a complaint made to us in the restaurant. Uh, the management had to come and speak to us because Jed's life story, astonishingly interesting though I found it, uh, was annoying to some of our fellow diners who said that it wasn't right to be recording a podcast in public. So uh, we were kicked out. We've been given a much nicer space. Hello. The frisbee? The frisbee. The frisbee. Yeah, the frisbee. Wow. The frisbee itself. And the aubergine baguette. The aubergine? Yeah. Thank you. And the wow. vegan rusty. And the rusty. I'm yeah. sorry to make you have a Thank vegan rusty. So much. Uh, it's okay. Thank you very much. So as a consequence of this, We've actually been moved along, <laughs> as often happens to me. Yeah. Every now and then I'm moved along from bars, not for the reasons you might expect, but more because I'm the wrong demographic. Okay. On this occasion, anyway, we were moved on. You've got to frighten people away. <laughs> the horses, you know. <laughs> yeah. So, uh, when we were moved along, yeah. we were chatting about Jed going to Berlin at the time of the fall of the wall. Yeah. So this is... 
89. 89, yeah. And then moving on to look at some interesting places in what was still really the transitioning Eastern it was, Bloc. Yeah, it was, it was, it was fantastically interesting. And again, coming from from England, and which was knee deep in the throes of Thatcherism, which was a very controlling kind of culture. Oh, I think we just heard from a graduate of it. Yes, indeed. that gentleman over there. So. <laughs> Would be a, a prime mover, perhaps. Sadly true. Sadly true. <laughs> to to sort of to find myself in these in these countries where the rule of law had effectively collapsed, yeah, and people were making it up as they went along, yeah, was was uh, I mean it was just just really really interesting and far far too interesting to leave in a hurry. Mm. So. But how were you making a crust? Were you filing stories and doing some journalism? No. What happened? What happened was that I had uh, I bought my first flat about a year earlier. Oh, you'd sold it when you moved. And I'm I sold sorry, so you it. You were living from that. And I put the yeah. money in my back yeah. pocket, and that was me. Yeah. The other thing was Smart. that, I, that um, yeah, yeah. I'd been in touch. Of, I kind of forget the, the chronology of all this, but somewhere along the line, I'd been in touch with a mate back at the Indy. Who had a, mate, a, a, po, a, a paper called the South Morning China Post in Hong Kong? Sure. And uh, he said, if if you ever get in trouble, you can always go there. You know. <laughs> and uh, so I thought that's the kind of friend to have, isn't that's it? That's a nice get out of jail. So. Oops. Oh, so God, I, just destroyed, I think I just that was the, the frisbee. frisbee on the beach. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. Anyway, yeah. So yeah. So by this time, you know. Ideas start germinating, and you think you you know I can do anything really. I, I wasn't beholden to anyone; didn't have yeah. to be back for anything. Um, eventually, just to sort of speed this up, eventually got the Trans Siberian Express across Russia through Mongolia to China because um, because it, by this time it was in my head to go to Hong Kong. Um, I'd heard that there was a boat going from Shanghai to Hong Kong, so I thought that sounded like an idea. Yeah. Shanghai, you want to go to Shanghai. Um, got to Shanghai to find that the boat had stopped running two years earlier. Um, but the only boat that was going now went to Yokohama. So I ended up living in Tokyo for two years. So the South China Morning Post never happened? South Morning China Post never happened, no. I went to Hong Kong for a weekend and hated it. Um, so what did you... And, and through all of this, are you saying to yourself or to anybody who asks, I'm a journalist, what are you saying you are? Is anybody asking you? Not really. Not really. I was, I was writing quite a lot, but just for myself. Um, not with a view for anything. Um, but but happily got a job in Tokyo as a journalist. Um, Tokyo, no great surprise to the microphone, hugely expensive place. And I, I remember arriving in uh, in Tokyo and I had fifteen hundred dollars left. And a week later, I was completely skimped. Oh, wow. And uh, so you got to get a job, and you got to get a job quickly. So you think, well, what can I do? And. Uh, so I started teaching English for a bit, which seemed an obvious thing to do. But then I got the... There were two English-language newspapers there. Um, one called the Japan Times, and I started writing about arts 
reviews and you know just general art stuff. Um, and there was one called the Nikkei Weekly, which was kind of like the the Financial Times equivalent. Yeah. Yeah. And I told them that I used to work for the FT in England, which was a lie. Which <laughs> not exactly the truth. Um, <laughs> and they gave me a job as a. But the man a, over there regard that as a lie. The man over there would regard it as a lie. Yeah. Yeah. Yes, but he is the voice of truth. He is. Yeah. This was pre-web, where it was possible to claim that you were the oh, basketball you... coach of the LA Lakers. Absolutely, mm. absolutely. Right. Absolutely, which, you know, it's such a shame that's gone. Pre-web must have been yeah. great. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, that whole notion of, oh, I'll Google you, you know, didn't exist. So, so I got quite, quite a nicely well-paid job being a, a financial reporter on this Nikkei Weekly paper. And, uh, and it's interesting how if you've got, you know, in my case, if you've got the basic writing skills mm-hmm. and you're interested in people, subject, subject can come and go. Yeah. So when you've been at The Independent yeah. and other things, had you been a specialist reporter oh, in a field? Yeah, so I should have said. I was, the, I was the TV editor by the time I left. TV editor. Yeah. Um, um, yeah, nice job, you know, really nice job. So you were an all-rounder, really. Mm. I mean, so now that people are doing specialised things like sports journalism, mm. doesn't that seem a little odd? It does, but but the the students that have got that, that I find at my college have got. A, I mean, in some respects, it, it's kind of it's kind of enviable because they they've got a really almost myopic passion for for sport. Um, and that's the only thing that they want to write about. It's the only thing that they're interested in. Okay. You know, they'll be interested in oh, I don't know, going out and drinking or going out and clubbing or a bit of music maybe. But it's all based around sport cool. generally. I, I went and gave a talk a couple of years ago at a university in Barcelona where they teach communications and I must have spoken to about 35 or, or 40 young um, of the undergraduate students, almost all of whom, just take as much as you want of me, almost all of whom only wanted to work as a PR person yeah. for, for Barca, oh, really? for the football team. They had no other no vision of any other work. They were not sports journalists. Yeah. They were going to be PR people for but why, the, for why the PR? Because, you know, Barca is a creed and uh-huh. they're signed on, they're true believers. Yeah. All the rest of it. I mean, with absolutely open faces, happy, smiling. And how many people did Barca employ as? <laughs> well. <laughs> many? Quite. Uh, this is the question, and I don't know the answer. Uh, but when I ask them, don't you think if there are you know 70 of you a year, and all of you want to work for Barca and PR, doesn't that mean that after a couple of years there are sort of hundreds of you roaming around the yeah, streets, yeah. doing what in some sense is the easiest job in the world, public relations for Barcelona Football Club. Mm. Sure. Not that tough. Sure. But even so, sure. incredibly yeah. narrow. But here, you, what you're saying is they, they're all sports nuts. They are sports nuts. Is that and I don't know, I find that a little, there's part of me that finds it a little sad and a little dismaying, really. Mm. There's, there's, um, 
I'm always amazed at the students that they're not more political, they're not angrier. Mm-hmm. You know, when uh, I know it's a long time ago, but when I was a student, and you know, you took advantage of that time to explore those parts of yourself. Isn't there an occupation of Sussex University going on at the moment? Yeah, Sussex is, is still a very different place to Brighton University. Mm. Oh, okay. It's kind of in the lifeblood of Sussex. It's you know historically, it's mm. the culture. But not Brighton. No, no. Uh, Brighton's kind of a new university, and there's there's no sort of there's no history as such to it. So it's just the history is now. Right. And like, the, I guess now, what being a student, well. When I was a student, which is actually quite some time ago, it wasn't political. It was about this is your chance to party. Right. And I guess nowadays, yeah. because of the huge loans and fees, it must be more about what job am I going to get out of this? Yeah. I do spend an enormous amount of time telling people not to worry about getting a job. Oh, really? Oh, yeah, of course. Of course. Um, you know, you spend the whole of your life working. You know, while you're young and you're at uni, you know, try and do other things. You don't have to worry about that stuff. Um, but the sad reality is you're right. You know, people are, are, are very concerned about, you know, loans and debt and all that kind of stuff and do and do think about jobs. And, of course, you know, the, the message that they get from, from all quarters is that there are no jobs. And the message they get from the... the journalism media world is that the industry is collapsing so yeah there's a level of concern for sure and are they just into sports or are they really into writing as well um and the idea of journalism can you eat this or is that yeah yeah i can eat that try some of this it's great okay yeah they're into they're into they're into sport primarily they're into sport um and you know, not unreasonably, quite they quite often come into college with quite a naive idea of what a sports journalist is and what they do, yeah. and how you spend your time as a sports journalist. And that, you know, at eighteen, that's fair enough. You know, I mean, we'll, we'll see how many, you know, what happens to them. How did you fall into it? Because the way you're talking makes me think that you probably fell into sports journalism as a mm. reporter. Mm. I did. Sorry, mouthful of rusty. Mm. Um, again, another little bit of a historical story, but but a sweet one and a true one. Um, when I was at Journo College, I um, I set up a, uh, a, a music magazine. I met a guy who was uh, deputy editor of a magazine called Smash Hits. Oh, yeah. Mm, that was my favourite magazine. Oh, it was top. Like, it was my top. My life was Smash Hits. Yeah, yeah. Um, and it was all the... Smash... It's alright. So, no, Smash Hits was... Uh, Smash it was all the things that I loved about and still do love about culture. It was it was life and celebratory and it wasn't it wasn't hugely deep or anything. It was just you know, loving the subject because we love the subject, you know? And funny. And, and funny and, and bright. When I was and not stupid a child, about it. it was very political. Yeah, yeah. It was, was it? It, it struck a really, really nice but really difficult middle ground between being bright and light 
and quite smart as well, you know. And not talking to its readers like they were idiots. And Neil Tennant from the Pet Shop Boys yeah, yeah, yeah. was one of their journalists. Yeah. So anyway, so I met this guy, he was deputy editor, he wants to set up a different sort of mag, a bit older. Um, we set it up together, had no money, had no experience, had no knowledge of anything really. And so we just made the magazine that we wanted to make. And I was quite into jazz at the time, so I interviewed a, a young jazz saxophonist. Um, a young British guy called Courtney Pine, who's a lovely, lovely bloke. Um, and it was just one of those interviews that went really well. Um, magazine came out, almost immediately the magazine folded, like most magazines do. And I had no CV to speak of, so I sent this magazine off to all the newspaper people I could get hold of names from, you know. Um, I just sent this off as, as like, you know, my calling card almost. And uh, a couple of weeks later I got a phone call from the PA of the sports editor of the Times. Will you come in and see him? Didn't have a clue what it was about. As a jazz writer, there's a great future for you writing about cricket. Well, they, well this was it. The idea, had no idea what it was about. Anyway, so I walked into this guy's office. Had Mix Magazine open at this Courtney Pine interview. We had a chat, and very sweetly, he was a lovely bloke, very sweetly, he said to me, you have a real affinity with young black men, don't you? <sighs> God. And, uh, and so I just danced on my feet a bit and thought, yes, I do. You're entirely right, I do. And I became one of their boxing writers. There and then. So you, you were going to be the Frank Bruno inside man? Yeah, yeah. That's yeah, crazy. Yeah, yeah. But fun. And uh, and I was sent off almost immediately to interview a guy called Lloyd Hunnigan, who was a fantastic character, who um, had just won a big championship, and he would have won the BBC Sports Personality of the Year award, except that Princess Anne won it very controversially that year. Um, what for not falling off a horse? For, for being Princess Anne, you kind of suspect, yeah. Um, but I became a boxing writer, yeah, and it was, it was great. Now, tell us how that morphed into your writing some books about sport. I mean, A, how you went from writing columns to writing books, but B, the, the books are not about boxing. No, the first two books were football based. And uh, I think the thing with journalism, any type of journalism, whether it's financial or whether it's, you know, writing about boxing or whatever, is you've got to be interested in people. Stories are about people, aren't they? And, and what they do is kind of incidental to the fact that they're people and what drives them and what makes them tick and what makes them interesting. Um, so once you're writing about stuff, to my way of thinking, you're writing about people. And you can you can learn the particular language of their trade, like going to Japan and learning a few financial terms and, and you know getting to know that that world a little bit, or writing about boxing and going to sniff around boxing gyms and getting a feel of that world. But you're still just dealing with people, and uh, I guess I was just very lucky. I guess I was just very lucky 
that people indulged me in, in allowing me to write about what I wanted to write about. So tell us about these books, because I'm interested in why journalists write books, how they happen, what the point is. Because when I was a nipper, I read lots of, I probably read more books by journalists yeah. than I read newspaper stories by journalists. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I started, I started writing books, I was offered a book, and the idea really appealed because even at that stage, even being a, a you know, Fleet Street writer, a national newspaper writer. You know, I was always of the opinion that, that books were like something that other people did, you know, mm. clever people, really? posh people. Mm. The real thing. Yeah. Mm. And the idea that I would write a book, it just seemed madness to me, you know? Um, you know, I'm not going to play the, you know, we lived in a cardboard box type and stuff, <laughs> but, but it, just seemed, it just seemed a different world, it really did. You know, books, the hard cover, your name and the spine. You know, Permanency, legitimacy. All that, all that. Capital. It seems so... Yeah. It's, it's like a very clever and grown-up thing to do. Clever and grown-up and at the same time quite exotic, you know? Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. And so, you know, someone said, you know, would you like to write a book? And it was like, how can you say no? You know, I mean, why would you say what, no? What did they invite you to write about? I wrote about, um, I mean, having said all that, the book ended up, you know, it's kind of trashy in the sense, but it was about football managers. Um, um, and the initial idea was what, you know, what makes a football manager tick. Um, so that was kind of how I did it. Isn't there quite a prominent book out recently on that? Barney Roney? Barney Roney, yeah, yeah. Did he write a book on He did, yeah, he did, yeah. yeah. So did you, you did profiles of them? Did some profiles, um, did some profiles of, of some of the, you know, the, the, the more well-known mad guys. Um, spent a lot of time with Tommy Doherty and people like this. Um, Famous uh, Scottish ex-manager yeah. of Chelsea and Manchester United. Yeah. And fantastic he ran off with the Ran off with the, the physio's wife, yeah. At Man, physio's wife, wasn't it? Man U. <laughs> just to, I mean, just to <laughs> add a sort of more serious intellectual content. Yeah. Give a little depth to the story. Yeah. <laughs> but, but, but again, you know, interesting people. And, and yeah, you've sure. got to tick that box. I don't know. I mean, how do you feel about that? I mean... Is it for you? Is it just about people, or is it more? Well, what do you mean when I read journalism? When you write? Oh, when I write, I think it's become a bit more about people than it was for me. I'm interested in processes and structures as they have an impact on people and others. Yeah. Uh, and I'm interested in how people get understood as crucial. I mean, thinking of the football manager, for example. Sure. I don't know what view you formed at the end of that time as to how important they actually were. They are, in Britain, very much the public face of the team. Yeah. The, it's a curious thing. The, the, apart from a few really high-profile figures who were like soap opera characters, like Doherty. Yeah. The football manager in Britain has become more, much, much more high profile since the advent of the transfer window. 
Uh, this mo there are only a couple of moments in the year when players can be bought and sold. Exactly, exactly. You can buy and sell players in the summer months or in January, and that's it. And managers are the keeper of that. Well, it's not so much that. It's not so much that. It's that when when I started writing about football, there was no transfer window. You could buy and sell through the year. And so newspapers always had plenty of stuff to write about. And if you didn't have anything to write about, you could make up stories about Toby Miller's joining Arsenal or something like this, you know? That is, which is which one I, of the great which, fictions of the 21st century. <laughs> but then the transfer window came in, and that's, that source of stories kind of disappeared. A new source of story was needed. And these characters sort of, you know, stepped into the fold and they filled that vacuum. Instead of having 12 months of gossip about where people might sign, yeah. you only had nine, eight or nine months. Yeah. And so these guys become the story space. They occupy the... I never thought of it like it's obvious when you see And the it. other thing that happened at around the same time yeah. was... Um, excuse me. Was uh, when Sky came... In and when the Premier League was formed, the whole commercialisation of football expanded. Newspapers went from having a couple of pages of sport at the back that were dismissed as the toy department by the rest of the paper to having typically, you know, 16 page, 24 page pull out supplements. You gotta fill these things. Even the indie does that. Yeah, yeah. 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 The you know the They've got instead of just being at the back, it is a pull out supplement no, on, on Monday. Monday or Sunday. Yeah. Sunday, yeah. Um and so all these papers suddenly had a whole lot more pages to fill. Yeah. And it was very quickly realised that you know, filling pages full of Oh, I don't know, dry match reports or things like this yeah. was just non-starter. So you had to create this soap opera. Soap opera. And I remember also, I guess the other thing that happened when I was a nipper in Britain was that there were a couple of people who were regarded as great journalists who happened to write about sports. No, go on, I'm full actually. So yeah, yeah it's, uh, it's deceptive. Yeah. Um, and the, the doyen of this, the guy that was most admired was Brian Glanville. Yeah. As somebody, I think he wrote novels and plays. Maybe. He wrote all sorts of things, and yeah. He certainly wrote books. Yeah. And he, I think he may still write for the Sunday. He does, yeah, yeah, yeah. At 80 something. Yeah. Wow. He yeah. was kind of lit, regarded as literature, wasn't mm. he? But he must have been a standout sure. in those days. Yeah, he was. He was, and still is, in fairness. But, yeah. but, but there are not many Brian Glanvilles to the pound, certainly not in England. The And I'm sure you've had pods coming out of your ears about all this, but the sports journalist in England is a different beast to the sports journalist in America, you know, traditionally. Sure, tell us about those differences. Well, there isn't the tradition of, of, of that. You know, I remember as a, as a, as a small child reading... Um, AJ Liebling, The Sweet Science. Yeah. And being absolutely captivated by by the beauty of the language and the words. And I didn't care about boxing in particularly. But it was just the passion and the it was this you know, this cross between passion and elegance that, that Sure. Well Roger Angel uh, in the New Yorker writing about baseball 
New Yorker readership, uh, upper middle class, white oriented, liberal magazine in New York that is a global success, not financially, but in terms of impact. That readership is not that interested in baseball, but mm. Roger Angel's baseball writing is a standout yeah. for everybody who reads it. Mm. Absolutely. Although cricket has a poetry. Uh, so we've, got, we've had cricket writers who are the same. Football sadly doesn't. You know, there's there's the odd Hugh McIlvaney, but 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 there's not there's not that grand tradition. And he was of, also boxing, wasn't he? Yeah, actually? yeah, yeah. What happened to him? He's still he's still showing it out. Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, no, he's an interesting. He's a good character. So. Suddenly there's this expansion of job opportunities and space, yeah. the need to fill more stuff. Mm. So there are more of you. Journalists. Sports journalists emerging in the mid-90s. Mid-90s. Oh, the mid-90s was, was a weird time. The mid-90s was, was a time of plenty on so many levels. Um, I mean, I was writing predominantly about music in the mid-90s. And people made, not people writing about it, but musicians made absolute fortunes in the mid-90s in a way that, that musicians can't and don't now. Um, there was just money for old rope, it seemed. It seemed there was a very odd culture. Certainly in London, there was a very odd culture in, in the mid-90s. Yeah. What sort of music were you writing about? Um, well, because it was national newspaper stuff, it was... It was predominantly mainstream. I had a page first in the Observer and then in the Daily Express. And uh, kind of the way that it worked was that, that you had to lead on, oh, I don't know, Beyonce or Robbie Williams or someone like this. But if you led with them, then you could sneak Miles Davis in under the carpet. Um, and so that's what, that, what we used to do. We used to sort of, you know, play the mainstream card. And then you could do And then we else. can do what we want, yeah. And what made you move from the big city to Brighton? A lovely place and quite close to the big city, but have yeah. you changed having lived your life in London, in Tokyo? Um, it was... Uh, it was a nice, it was another adventure. Well, I, the, 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 the long story short, Toby, is when I, I grew up in East London, very urban environment. and uh, Traditional migrant, kind of working class environment, yeah. 19th century, a lot of Jewish Russian refugees, 21st century, lots of people from Bangladesh, other parts of the world. Emerging. Absolutely, absolutely. And still quite a lot of people from Russian Jewish backgrounds living there. Actually. Sure. A sure. traditional kind of get you know start poor yeah. part of the world. Yeah, yeah. Say. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 It, it's 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 traditionally the the first stop off from the on the boat. On the boat. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And that that's kind of where I grew up, and, and I remember as a kid. The biggest treat in the world was to go to the seaside for a day, and it was it was such an adventure, such an outing. Yeah. Where did you go from there? Typically, um, Margate. We used to go to a place called um, Cliftonville. Cliftonville was um, oh, I don't know. The, 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 you tell me the New York equivalent, but it was where the the, the working class Jews from East London used to go to the seaside. Oh, yeah. 
Brighton Beach. Brighton Beach, yeah, yeah, that kind of stuff. Did you ever go to Canby Island? No, no, Canby Island. It my, my, I used to go, when I was a kid, I used to go to where, frankly, where my parents would go was where the Jews went, you know? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and, uh, and so that's where we went, um, West Cliff-on-Sea. Yeah. You know, these sorts of places that, that, you know, you could go and you could you could stay in a hotel that was a kosher hotel. Um, um, that catered for a very particular audience, you know? Um, well, in the yeah. old days in New York, it would actually be upstate in the Catskills. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, just because it was a little bit cooler physically. Yeah. But people wouldn't necessarily go to the beach. And then when air conditioning was invented and when 707s were built, it became possible to go to Miami quite cheaply. Yeah. yeah. And, and that became live there. So that, that yeah. yeah, yeah. <laughs> Thanks for sharing that. <laughs> I, of course, am not going, as the guy boy of the conversation, <laughs> not going to use such terminology. Yeah, but, uh, but it's also, yes, you're right. But it's also about money. But it's also about money. When I was little, we would go to Canvey or South End, right. um, which are basically, I guess, in Essex. Yeah, yeah. Um, and then when we had a little bit more money, we would go to Bournemouth. Yeah, you know, yeah, Bournemouth, yeah. You know, it's really exhausting. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, no, it's true. It's true. No. <laughs> it's true. Bournemouth is still where the. The, the you know the expanded wallet yeah, yeah. goes off to Bournemouth. <laughs> yeah. It's great. It's great. No, it's 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 quite posh there, Toby. Yeah, yeah. Not compared to LA, but <laughs> <laughs> sorry, darlings. Anyway, uh, <laughs> as an organic intellectual of international working class, I can relate almost precisely to what both yeah. of you just keyword yeah. keyword almost. <laughs> <laughs> So I think what you're telling us is that once you were a grown-up, you thought, gee, I'd like, I do love to live beside the seaside. Yeah, beside, I do like to be beside the seaside. Yeah, yeah. And, and I'd just, had, you know, we'd just had a kid and it just seemed the right thing to do. And I was working at the Daily Express. There's a direct train from Brighton to the day um, where the Express was. And it was, it was easy. It was an easy decision to make. Wow. Yeah, yeah. And what about becoming an academic? I imagine it wasn't on your imagined future. Not on the radar at all. It was even further off the radar than writing a book. You know, it's... Uh, but um, I was asked to do some guest lectures over the years. And guest lectures are lovely because you go in... and you care, no responsibility. Exactly, exactly. You go in and you tell a few war stories... And you waltz off with a cheque in your pocket. Right, and the kids love the you. The kids love you. And they think, why isn't he out to professor? Exactly, exactly. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and, the, and the lecturer who's asked you to come in is sitting there grinding their teeth kind a little bit, you, you know, yeah. yeah. Um, so I used to do that a little bit. Um, and you can talk about, you know, the time you met this person and what he's like or she's like or whatever, you know. Um, but, uh, so that gave you a bit of a taste. That for gave it. me a bit of a taste for it, and that made me less afraid, I guess. So and and then a strange thing happened. Sorry. Yeah, go ahead. No. And then um, a character who popped up at the, the start of this podcast. Um, the robster. The, ro- the robster, indeed. The robster, who by this time was working at Brighton. This is Rob Steen, who, as we were saying early before, we were so rudely interrupted has been in the pod himself. Yeah, no, Rob crops up quite a lot in quite a lot of stories. And uh, 
So Rob was by now working in Brighton. Um, and what happened was, as far as I can understand, just before um, the college year started, one of the lecturers flounced off in a hissy fit. Had to, had a row with. How unusual for a journalist or an academic. It's it's a bizarre idea, strange, I know. A bizarre idea. Unprecedented, really. <laughs> People have just have been thrown into complete shock. Bizarre idea. But what it meant was that the, the college was a lecturer down. There was no time to put a proper advert in Bring the paper in or anything. So everyone who worked there call basically for, call for muggins. Basically, everyone who worked there got on the phone to their mate and said, "Listen, there's a job going. You want it?" And. Uh, Actually, I shouldn't say that. That was a very, very rigorous interview. <laughs> <laughs> and you had to be terribly, terribly highly qualified to get this job, yeah. It's moving right along. <laughs> yeah. So, no, so basically Rob gave me a shout. I applied, yeah. got the gig. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, you were mentioning something about intimidation or worse to that effect earlier. And, um, you had gone to college. Yeah. So, um, was I always found after I went to university as a teenager, yeah. and whenever I would go back in the years between then and when I became a professor, professor mean in the U.S. sense, generic, you know, anybody who lectures is a professor doesn't mean you're a so quasi. He's very posh. Don't believe him. He's very <laughs> posh. Right. I'm always a posh boy, of course, <laughs> in any environment. Posh boy, boy. Yeah, yeah. Posh boy. <laughs> so. Posh Goy Boy, I would find when I went into universities, when I went onto campuses for whatever reason, on the one hand, I felt as though this was beyond me. On the other, I felt as though it was quite a safe and fun environment because there weren't people running around hating everybody. But I could never imagine myself working in one of these places. I didn't feel as though I had the intellectual capacity or capital or whatever. So I was just interested in... How long did it take you to feel this is home? Well, shortly after we began this conversation... <laughs> when we moved table. I had my, no, that was my Damascene moment. Like the Duke of Gloucester or Saul when he was one of your people. I stumbled when I saw him, you know, and then suddenly... I just, yeah, I started pulling my chain like right. you are now. As you do. Yeah, as one does. Yeah, yeah. So, no, um, I think what happened was, in my case, when I went to university, people didn't study the sorts of things that you and I profess. Mm. I didn't know you could do journalism at university. I didn't know you could do sport, I mean, study journalism at university. I didn't think you could study sport. I didn't think you could study culture yeah. other than in an archaeological or anthropological way. So the idea that the popular world that mattered to me and my friends was worthy of study was just completely outside my comfort. Mm. Yeah, television? Why would you study that? I didn't think any of these things were on the agenda. When I discovered they were, I felt more at home, even as I thought the forms of knowledge you got in these more traditional areas were of use for understanding these newer domains. So I think for me that was probably right. Yeah, I, I for me it was. Um, I realised, I realised that that I, what I had to offer the students was was a kind of counterbalance to the academics who were teaching them oh. at college. Um, they were teaching them a whole host of stuff that was fantastically interesting and, and you know learned and all that kind of stuff. But 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 things that I could a I couldn't get near, 
and B, with the greatest of respect, wouldn't particularly help them in, in their quest to become a journalist. Whereas the stuff that I had would. And, and, and in a very sort of basic sense, I guess what I realised was that I'd done what they wanted to do. Yes. Um, and I could pass that on, you know? Now, that's interesting because certainly one of the reasons I got jobs initially in academia was because I'd worked in the media. And none of the people who were teaching media studies have done anything other than turn on a radio set or a TV and not very often. Whereas I've been in on it. But I don't talk about that very much now in my teaching because it's a long time since I did that. And the question is for how long these forms of knowledge and qualifications last. And this is what I, I suppose I'd like to, to move on to in the last 10 minutes yeah. or so, which is the obvious question that I've got to ask every journalist that I talk to, yeah. uh, also, namely, what is the future of all of this? It's a really... It's an interesting question and it's something that, that everyone grapples with. Okay, for... If you, if you take as a base camp idea that we're constantly having to learn new things, adapt new skills, adapt new ideas, ways of doing things. And you've done that a million times in your life. And we've all done that a million yeah. times. Yeah. And yeah. the things that we've, we've learned in the past, we don't have to unlearn because we still have to do them. We've just got to learn more stuff. Mm. So, Lovely. Yeah, it's a yeah. I wouldn't mind a cup of tea. Have you guys got time or energy? Oh, I've got, yeah, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, so. uh, for me, yes. Uh, can I have a black Americano, please? Do you have anything herbal? Yes. Uh, um, maybe green tea? Okay, Thank you. Um, we've just, I've, I've, it sounds, it, it's wrong to say I've just started teaching, but I've just started running um, a module at college. A module uh, is the... A course. Uh, yeah, it means... Part of, part of the course. It means course. Yeah. Somehow or other, I don't know why. <laughs> I just learnt this word in the last four oh. months. Right, so. okay. Okay, okay. it's a, it's a, a subject strand. Um, and it's called digital journalism because no one else had an idea of what to call it and because it was suitably vague that anything could fit in it. Yeah. And and what it what we want to do, what I want to do with it is to equip the twenty first century journalist with all the tools that they need. Yeah. So so it's not just about writing, it's about you've got to sort of, you know, learn how to film, you've got to learn how to make podcasts, you've got to learn how to code a website, you've got to learn analytics, you know, live blogging, uh, you know, a thousand things. That's great. It's great, but it's a problem. That's, because It's huge. It's A, it's huge, B, it's moving faster than we're talking, and B, I've never done it, you know? Well, that's the question I was asking about how long the penumbra stretches from one's own experience. Yeah. Give you an example. If you work for NBC in the United States, and I imagine it's the same for the BBC. If you work for NBC, you know, when you went to do a story ten years ago, yeah. you had a sound recordist, 
you had an interviewer, you being in a sense producer, journalist. You had a sound recorder, you had an interviewer, you had a camera operator. Now you have none of those people and in addition to recording for NBC, you're recording for MSNBC, which is their cable news station. You're recording for CNBC, which is their business news station. You're recording for CNBC Africa, mm -hmm. CNBC Asia, mm -hmm. CNBC Europe, which are the regional business stations, and you're writing copy yeah. for all of those yeah. and more. Yeah. So these people are doing the work of about 10 in one body mm. and across many more platforms, as the saying goes, in their footprints. Yeah. That's astonishing. Yeah. But does, it, does it mean in some ways that they develop the skills to do all those things and talk to all those audiences? Or does it mean that news becomes more generic? A lot of the time, well, both. and those audiences become more generic. Both. Uh, on the one hand, they learn that they've got to think about audiences that are thematically and geographically specific. On the other hand, news becomes more generic because guess what? Press releases become more yeah. important. <laughs> Rewriting press releases yeah. is crucial. One yeah, of the yeah. things I'm teaching my students now, who are from all over the world, principally Asia, running cultural organizations like museums and galleries, is this is the time when you are journalists because increasingly the press releases you write, if you know how to write them in ways that are helpful yeah. to journalists, will simply be reprinted. I see that so much in my life. Ever world. more yeah. than ever before. So, like because where people cannot yeah, it's find that the old time. journalism, yeah. isn't it? Where, where, where you've said what you've sent or said to the press is reprinted word for Thanks. word. Right, with a byline. Yeah. yeah. And you yeah. can't blame yeah. these people. What are no. they to do? Yeah. I mean, for us it's great because right. like you get word for word exactly what you want into the media. Mm. But it must be quite depressing as a journalist, not thank you not to be able to have the time to actually write your own view of it. Exactly. That's my concern about this digital stuff. Yeah. Of course it's changing all the time, yeah. but the labour power required to do it is shrinking in terms of people and of course. expanding in yeah. terms of pressure. That's my as an outsider, that's my perception. Yeah, and all that's true and all the stuff that you were talking about before about you know the tasks that they have to perform you know, means that generally, you know, people are working a whole lot harder for not a lot more reward. Um, it means a lot less people are employed because one person's doing everything. It's uh, it's a very difficult time, and it's and but it, it you know it's it's interesting. I got a, a guy come in to do a guest lecture on this digital journalism course uh, last week, and he's. He's on some digital startup company and he's about 12 years old or something, and it's yeah, dean, terribly depressing. Like the dean of my school at City, yeah. University of London, 12. Yeah, something like this. He's too young to be going out with your daughter. <laughs> Sorry, Quite if the right dean's it. listening, all on to you, sir. And if my daughter's listening, certainly true. <laughs> <laughs> but but, but he, uh, he was interesting in, in so far as he was sort of trying to put all this in some sort of historical context and he was saying that the, the internet was as important as the industrial revolution as important as the Gutenberg press and it's only been going since 91 and it's only been real since the turn of the century really and we haven't started trying to work out how to use it how to implement it, what to do with it 
and and the, the the trades that feed off it, like journalism at the moment, don't really know what. No, what, it's the most the important thing since the seven oh seven. Well, they got they got people to Miami. <laughs> well, got your people to Miami. No, I'm the seven oh seven. Let made. my people go. Bloody <laughs> <laughs> everywhere. That's why I keep letting you go, and you just proliferate everywhere. I don't know. Can't stop it. Uh, no, the seven oh seven made it possible for reporters to and film to fly around the world and film conflicts. Yeah. And before that, it's the uh, under, underwater cable across the world sending information. But these people don't want to know about that kind of history. I, 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 I would put it on a different level to the 707 that you just explained. Yeah. I, I think it just opens up whole new vistas globally, immediately. Well, that meant... Uh, film from conflict zones two days after it happened. Sure. Whereas if you go back to the pre-underwater cable days, you're talking about three months. Sure. And now we're talking... People in Britain didn't know Nelson had died at the Battle of Trafalgar for weeks. Yeah, yeah. Nelson... Nelson died? See, some people are still learning this, but I do love to be beside the seaside. <laughs> We go here to slow down, <laughs> but but you know now everything's immediate. You know you can you can you can argue that's awesome. What's more important, sure. but but now things are absolutely immediate globally. Yeah. What do we do with it? How do well, we how well, do we train journalists to deal with that? Of course, the the other side of this is that the definition of a journalist is changing. Maybe. What about this notion that I'm very dubious about, perhaps you're not, of the citizen journalist that we hear a great deal. Yeah. What about uh, the tweeting from the hotel in Mumbai? Um, it's it's oh bless. It's, oh wow! Golly! Thank you. Are they vegan? No, do you want the vegan ones? Oh well, they can have non-vegan. No, it's cool. It's cool. Oh, no, we'll we'll, we'll, we'll go vegan. Okay. We've been offered a couple of goat's heads. <laughs> We've asked for vegan. We're getting vegan goats. versions of them. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, no, there's got to be, there's got to be a differential between someone with a degree of responsibility who's, who's answerable and someone who's just got a microphone uh, and, and the means of... Mm. <laughs> but, but, no, but that's a special microphone. Thank you so much. You know, just because you got, I don't know, just because... It's difficult, it's difficult where to draw the line and who makes that decision, yeah. you know. But just because you've got the means of production, does that mean that you should produce? I don't know. What Sara is, amongst other things, a social reporter, a term I'd never heard until very recently. Um, so there's, um, I guess it's a, a grassroots social movement that I'm involved in called the Transition Network. Yeah, yeah, I, you know, I live in Lewis. Town. Oh, do you? Yeah. Oh, okay, so it's massive there. Yeah. You have your own currency and energy company and everything. Yeah. Okay, and um, we have a thing basically to avoid being a social movement that had leaders at the top who were the people speaking and writing and thinking. They developed a project called the Social Reporters, which are people from all different transition groups around the country right. who write regular blogs, right. like a couple of months, and there's about ten of us. And so I'm one of those people. Fantastic. Um, and it's great because, and it's you, you're telling the stories of your town yeah, yeah. and of what's yeah, going yeah. on, and it's very it keeps it grassroots. Yeah. And I get, and I had never written before really um, in that way. 
and I'm not a journalist. She's a natural. I could spend a but year and not write a blog as well as. Sam. But but you've got you've got knowledge and you've got passion. Yeah. You got knowledge. You got passion. You're clearly, you know, you clearly know how to construct sentences. You only got to listen to how you speak. So. I guess, but it's Sounds also, to reason. What's yes. not to like, you know? But I think something... <laughs> Who cares when all she loves her mother? It's the... true, it's true. <laughs> Oi. Oi, but it's true. Um, <laughs> Sorry, somebody else's terrain. I should... Yeah. Bam. Bam, Toby, back in the box. But Quiet now. I think something that's been... Aside from what I do, something that's been important in the last few years is a lot of really important things have come from people just being there with a microphone or being able to tweet. Yeah, yeah. So I guess one thinks of the um, Arab Spring, um, there's a particular thing that I'm quite, um, that made a big impact on me, which was, um, like I go on a lot of protests and demonstrations and have done for many years. and. Um, Oh. The police killed someone on a demonstration a few years ago and basically tried to cover it up. And somebody was there with a, a mobile phone who was like an investment banker. A Wall Street trader. This yeah. is Ian Tomlinson. Yeah, yeah. yeah in London. Yeah. And it was uncovered because of someone who wasn't a journalist yeah. at all, like, you know, not a citizen journalist, just a guy with a phone. Yeah. Who and it, you know, and that's had a massive impact. Sure, I mean it's it's a fantastic boon to democracy mm. on many levels, for sure. And uh, and maybe we do get a little bit too hung up on, you know, well, are they journalists? Are they impartial? Mm. I mean, I don't know. I, I I don't know. I mean, really mixed two minds about it. You know, does it matter? The words getting out. You know, the the message is getting out. How we receive that message, I guess, is up to us. And 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 I think I think any form that that that, that you know means that anyone can get their message out. And we don't have to rely on press barons to give us the green light to do that. It's got to be a good thing. But for these things to catch on and really make an an impact in a significant way, tweets. Mm -hmm images and so on they have to be taken up by the conventional bourgeois media or they die a lonely death the lonely death may have lots of people present as witnesses mm -hmm. but big decision makers don't give a shit most of it is people watching funny dances or silly old men playing with dogs mm. and it's gone in a second for these things to mean something the Grawniad or whoever has to pick up the guy's video mm. and force it onto the cops. There Poss is still a two-step mode of influence, sure. politically. Possibly, possibly. There, but there's a, there's there's another thing with with the the Twitter phenomenon, for example. Yeah. With the what? Sorry. With the Twitter. Twitter, Twitter is Twitter. different. Where, Twitter makes news. Where, no, well, also whereby journalists are getting followed, and journalists get followed far more than the newspaper feed from. The newspaper Twitter feed gets followed. Oh really? I didn't know that. Yeah, no, no. It's uh, I, 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 young Rob, who we have mentioned before, and 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 and, and I wrote. Uh, we've just written a paper on this, and. Uh, well, it must be true. Then. And it must clearly, it must be true. <laughs> but, but the cult of the personality on Twitter has, has taken off. 
far outstripping the, 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 the loyalty to the newspaper, which could lead to a possible future where people follow journalists rather than follow newspapers, Yeah. which could lead to a future where the newspapers aren't as important as the individual journalists. Well, we saw an interesting thing when years ago, at the beginning of when newspapers were on the web, the New York Times tried to put up a paywall. The yeah. major columnists basically revolted because they weren't getting the word out anymore. When they went to fancy dinner parties in Manhattan, nobody knew what they'd written a week earlier. Mm. And they said, look, where were these opinion makers? They're reading sure. stuff on the web. They're not interested in what we say anymore because it's not available free. Now, of course, there is such a paywall, but or it's partial. Mm. And editors hit picks so gratis to people. But Twitter does allow precisely this communication between named journalists, people with a byline. Yeah. Uh, yeah, and people with a big profile. Yeah. Like I follow Paul Mason, but I don't follow Newsnight, mm -hmm. for example. And Newsnight is a, an alleged current affairs program on the BBC television. <laughs> no, because they're people that you think will know stuff. But, but then what happens with the following? If allegedly, this isn't true, but imagine it were, nobody reads newspapers anymore online, mm -hmm. nobody reads television, nobody listens to radio. Again, all these things are not mm -hmm. true. But if they were to be, to be the case, how would you know to follow a Paul Mason? It's dependent on the fact that there is a famous mm. television yeah. current. Well, it's, it's certainly in a transition, for sure. Um, but I, I don't know, but but, but you get newspapers, people more, buy newspapers. One more only, no more goat's heads. You buy newspapers because a lot of the time the, 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 they have journalists that you trust within them. Right? Mm. I, I'm sure everyone's had this. I, I used to buy the Daily Mirror a long time ago because they had a writer called Paul Fort, mm. who, who I thought was, you know, right on it. Um, Daily Mirror is a left tabloid, left-wing tabloid, which is to say, pitched to the working class in Britain, Labour Party voter. Um, very and traditional. Paul Fort is part of a very important political family. Yeah. Uh, Paul Foot's father, Michael, was Labour leader for a short while, um, and he was a very—he was a, a, a traditional, old-school campaigning journalist. Um, worth buying the paper for alone, but in the modern era, you wouldn't have to buy the paper. You just have to buy him. You don't even have to buy him. No. Just follow him. Um, you know, there's. there's Problems how to monetize all of that. Problems how Paul Foot's going to monetize himself. Um, problem: What happens to the Mirror if people just follow their reporters? Well, let me throw this out there for a moment, and then we should finish because we've kept you both far too long. Who is this royal we? Hush, <laughs> boy, boy. <laughs> And this is the example of a Daily Mail, which is the most popular newspaper online in the United States. The Daily Mail here is a hard-right, working-class-oriented tabloid. But in the US, it's just TNA online and gossip. 
it's not even you know right-wing anti-immigrant it's just women in bikinis and gossip about celebrities it is making lots of money yes. loads of it. yeah yeah give the people what they want right public interest is what interests the public sure so the issue is how does one find a means if that's the future online of funding the traditional political participatory citizen oriented journalism mm. that animates us along with the pleasure difficult difficult the pleasure, difficult the depth and pleasure of you know a Brian Glanville or yeah. a Hugh McElvain. it's difficult the only or not the only, but the best example in, in again in England is this guy Guido Fawkes. Oh, you yeah. know this guy, um, who's not from a journalist background. Uh, he's just a bloke. Um, but but over a relatively short period of time, he's created this persona, which has become the portal for politicians to mouth off about each other. Right, really, so he he has a blog that is very influential within the Conservative Party here in the UK, but mm. more than that... It's transcended that, it's, it's, he now, it's just powerful. He now is brought on, wheeled on to television and radio and pods to talk about British politics. Yeah. And to represent a certain tendency in the Conservative Party. Sure. But he has a, he has a, a legitimacy that comes purely from him doing his own thing. Yeah. He's not affiliated to a newspaper that gives him a gravitas at all. Um, you know, sport, for example, doesn't have this kind of figure. But there's no reason why it couldn't. couldn't no, he's and like won't. The, the Daily Coast in the United States, but that's a liberal. Yeah. Point taken. Uh, my only point, my only ca caveat on that would be that these people only get that because they're monumentally ideological. Well, like a kind of shock jock almost. Yes. There aren't yeah. really instances of politically ambiguous muckrakers yeah. or just the facts man reporters who have this kind of influence. They're all people who represent the right or the left in a very clear way. Toby, gap in the market for you. Absolutely, my boy. <laughs> well, on that note, before we get anybody else thrown out of the restaurant, I would like to thank you both for being with us. And Jedstar, I'm hoping that you will re-enter the pod at some future moment. Or perhaps on the occasion of your next major global triumph. We're yours. We're always yours.